0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. My name is Madeline Ahern and today I am joined by Dr. Kaz Nelson who is a fellow of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and serves as Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Associate Designated Institutional Official in the Office of Graduate Medical Education at the University of Minnesota Medical School. In today's episode, we discuss how AI is being used to provide ancillary support to an already strained mental health system. We also discuss current barriers to psychiatric care and how patients and their families interact with mental health systems for the first time. We also discuss the challenges of pursuing a career in medicine and the support that we have received along the way. To our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure entirely. Thank you.
0: Yeah. How we start off these episodes is we usually ask you to just tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey into medicine or anything you find interesting or that you'd like to share with our listeners.
1: Well, Maddie, I'm a lifelong Minnesotan, um, married to my partner, Paul, got four kids, and uh, a little bit about my growing up years in Minnesota it was during a time when the gender disparities in education between girls and boys in the classroom was beginning to be a little bit better recognized. And so when I look back at those years, I really feel that I did benefit from the steps that the educational system and teachers were making to make classrooms more inclusive of girls. And so I just wanted to point out that privilege. I think it did really empower me to prioritize academics and to celebrate some of my achievements during those developmental years. And when I hit high school or later stages of my education, the most glaring thing to me that, that stood out day to day was there were people living with psychiatric illness around me. And sometimes it would be pretty obvious. And there just seemed to be a lot of bias or negative attitudes or characterizing psychiatric illness as moral failings or characterological problems, whereas there was also this parallel messaging of mental illness is just like any other illness, just like diabetes or high blood pressure, and and we shouldn't necessarily see it differently. So that difference in how I thought things ought to be or were versus versus what I was seeing around me uh, really drove me.
0: That's super interesting. I want to touch on what you said about kind of the gender disparity. I'm sure the situation was different when you were in medical school, but now our class is primarily female. I think we're, I think uh, class of 2024 is 66% women. So making leaps and bounds. And I'm curious to hear from you, how did you decide to pursue medicine?
1: Yeah, I didn't know a lot about psychiatry, but even early on in high school, I was aware that there was a medical specialty where somebody could grow up and be a doctor, which to me was the pinnacle of achievement—being a physician. There are no physicians in my family, so uh, if I just thought if you asked an average person what is the best career or the most uh, high-impact career one could have, um, in my high school mind, that number one thing was a physician, and I was aware from television shows and Doogie Howser and and. Uh, other um, growing pains, uh, some of these sitcoms and things that there were medical specialties that had the privilege to prioritize mental health. And so um, it's embarrassing to say this now looking back, but if you go into the 1998 Woodbury High School yearbook, underneath the little picture of Taz is uh, the the script, my goal is to become a psychiatrist, (laughs) whereas all the other scripts under the photos are like Thanks for a great year. Shout out to my friends, that kind of thing. Um, I, I just was awesome. kind of an <laughs> odd high schooler in that I just had this um, vision, vision for my life is to be a medical doctor in psychiatry. And so uh, even going into to college and um, onward into medical school, that just Stuck in my brain, and even as I tried to say, "Well, maybe I could be another medical specialty, or maybe I could should be a psychologist, or serve the mental health, uh, mentally ill population in some other way," um, my journey facilitated this ultimate goal of becoming a psychiatrist. And uh, it's been um, totally challenging. (laughs) Not going to lie, there's been a lot of uh, sacrifice and other opportunities that I didn't necessarily have access to because of this training pathway. Um, But for me, in my life, the benefits have outweighed the risks, to use medical terminology. Um, I don't regret any any of my uh, choices in terms of pursuing this profession that I love, that has changed me intrinsically as a person, and has allowed me to serve communities, populations, and people in a way that... I personally identify as most valuable.
0: Absolutely, I think it's so cool that you talk about kind of growing up in the Twin Cities area and and serving this population. I'm also local. I grew up in St. Paul, and I will cling to the Twin Cities area as long as I possibly can. If residents sends me far away, I will be devastated. But um, it's cer- it's certainly a really unique privilege to grow up in a community and then be able to turn around and, and serve the same community. So I resonate with what you're saying there and you also touch yeah. on some of the the sacrifices and some of the challenges that you've faced kind of in this career path i'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that
1: yeah absolutely and i don't want to necessarily frame these as just my sacrifices because being in the context of a family and a partnership uh, my partner paul he had been pursuing a, a phd at the time where we started to have children and grow our family and so he switched course from um, nearly completing a PhD to being a stay-at-home parent. That allowed me to uh, have four kids, one in medical school, one in residency, a couple after I joined faculty, and know that my children and family were being cared for. Uh, He made that sacrifice so that I could really focus on um, professional attainment and achievement. And so, a lot of you know overnights and weekends on call and uh, uh, missed family engagements and um, you know not always being able to see the the children at preschool doing their holiday performance um, things like that that I look back and I can see clearly that I missed out on those things but and of course the the sacrifice that my family has uh, invested in terms of me not always being being available or being on call and so um, those are real issues that have a cost, and I in no way want to minimize that cost, and I just want to recognize it and express my gratitude that there was this team effort that has really supported me in this process. So, not easy, but ultimately worth it, I would say.
0: Absolutely, and I think that behind every good physician and medical student as well, that there's a team of people who are you know, at home cooking the meals, or in my case, you know, my mom will stop by and deliver groceries to me when I have a six day week and 12 hours a day on internal medicine. You know, it's, it's really, there's a lot of people behind every physician who's like on the wards. So I very much resonate with that. And I want to continue this conversation. But I also want to touch on our hot topic today, which is the use of AI in mental health care. And Part of what you're talking about to me sounds a little bit like, you know, there's a heavy burden on physicians to care for a growing patient population. And now that, you know, psychiatric complaints are a little bit more socially acceptable to to seek care for, I can imagine the burden on the on the healthcare system is growing. What are your thoughts on kind of how things have been moving in that direction?
1: It's absolutely um uh moral imperative on behalf of ourselves and our society that we serve the needs of those experiencing mental illness and the disparities in this realm across all communities across all populations are stark and have been you know that's been the legacy of our healthcare care system uh, you know <laughs> from <laughs> from the beginning and so If you ask the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, they will say it's not that our system in terms of serving psychiatric needs is broken. It's not like it was going along and then, oops, it broke. It was just simply never built. We have not had a seamless and comprehensive system to meet the needs of these communities. At tremendous cost, there are potentially fatal outcomes, life trajectory changing outcomes, enormous costs. to Families, individuals, communities, and broader society. When we don't do this right, and we're not doing it right, uh, the public health costs are immeasurable. So it's really, um, yeah, yes, of course, physicians, psychiatrists are are seeing this firsthand. But it's really all of us. All of us know somebody whose mental health needs were, you know, falling through the cracks. But it's more like a, a canyon. <laughs> and i don't mean to laugh I, I i laugh out of really just the the absurdity of these limitations that that the the current system has is that that that's again another thing by I me mean by it's not easy it's challenging it's challenging to try to swim upstream or kind of go against the status quo in a very difficult and and structurally non functional system essentially so As we step into the future, we're going to need more people, more technologies, more innovation, more investment at a minimum uh, in order to start to move towards this vision that I think many of us hold, which is to meet the needs of people holistically, mental health, medical health, societal health, family health, community health, public health, Uh, We have a vision. Uh, Getting there is going to require a lot. We can all be part of the solution.
0: Absolutely. And from my experience in in psychiatry medical school, we get uh, a four week block of psychiatry, uh, very, for me, a very impactful experience, but it kind of seems like, and I'll use an analogy here, the mental health system seems like a house that is being built and there's really not a foundation we kind of didn't lay, you know, my, my fiance is an engineer, we didn't lay the concrete down, we didn't build the foundation, and all of a sudden we're wondering why the house is leaning like a little bit to the side, or like the windows keep cracking.
1: There's just- There's like, no roof. There's, there's no, no roof, to- yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe uh, part of the house has some um, framing, <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're trying to live and work in this, uh, uh, partially built uh, framework without walls, roof, or windows, and a, and a shaky foundation. So, absolutely. And, and I don't it, mean to be so doom and gloom, because obviously we want to be uh, moving forward. But uh, unless we acknowledge some of the true deficits of what we're currently working with, we're not going to be able to do this well.
0: Absolutely. And it, and it kind of has fallen to physicians, healthcare providers to fix this house with not a lot of knowledge of how to overhaul an entire system and so i want to kind of introduce here our topic a little bit more which is ai and mental health care and specifically chatbots and how they're being used you know you talk about kind of the shortage of mental health providers how they're being used to kind of supplement that shortage and i have here a little snippet from last week tonight with john oliver This episode titled Mental Health Care aired in August 2022 and showcases how AI is currently being used in mental health care and why AI might not be our first line of care for patients with mental health concerns. Whether in small towns or big cities, we don't have enough mental health professionals. And that gulf between supply and demand has proven very attractive to Silicon Valley. (laughs) Robots is a free app where you can chat with an AI robot mental health ally, and unfortunately, as reporters have found, Wobot has not always been great
1: at giving appropriate feedback.
0: We gave Wobot a try to see how it would respond to a mental health issue that affects roughly 18% of the adult U.S. population. Super anxious and can barely sleep, he responded, ah, I can't wait to hop into my
1: jammies later.
0: Wobot, which is featured in the Last Week Tonight special, comes under a particular amount of scrutiny, but from their perspective, it's actually a really cool idea. They want to use their system, the AI chatbot, as a 24-7, you know, no appointments, no travel. Conversations can be as short or as long as people would prefer. I mean there's a significant factor of convenience here. In my mind, this would be great for patients needing more consistent support. Obviously, that standard would be difficult for human health care providers to achieve. Dr. Nelson, what are your thoughts?
1: I think that spending time brainstorming in and investing in technologies that make mental health support or psychiatric care more acceptable is going to be critically important with with this incomplete system that we have, the barriers to accessing care are enormous. Uh, Yes, we've made some steps with video accessibility for those who might be in rural settings, but that doesn't do anybody any good if they don't have um, broadband internet or other technologies to support those video visits or if there's licensing restrictions Somebody in rural Wisconsin needs help, but my license is in Minnesota. There's these pretty serious structural barriers. Who can take time out of their day? If they're working to pay rent, can you miss a half day to drive to a psychiatric appointment park, pay $10 for the ramp and and go back to your job? The the cost of that, uh, not even including the copay or insurance costs, sometimes for some people they say the cost of that simply does not justify me um, utilizing that service. And even if you do try to utilize that service, maybe that appointment is 90 days out. Well, what good does that do me? I'm suffering right now. So um, I completely acknowledge and applaud people trying to solve this issue and make psychiatric care, high quality psychiatric care more accessible. Of course, the question is raised, what is high quality support? What is high quality psychiatric care? Some of the limitations with with Wobot in particular or other chat-based uh, AI services, it's only as good, as we know, a mantra in machine learning, it's only as good as the inputs. And if the inputs are insufficient or don't account for the complexity of somebody's needs or the risks or the high stakes of what somebody might be experiencing, are there situations where it could do more harm than good? Absolutely. And so it's it's not a cure-all, it's not a panacea. I see it as a, a sliver in the broad range of services that we should be seeking to utilize and build. And then precision in what types of interventions are available to meet what kinds of needs. Because right now, if we try to use Wobot to uh, help somebody who may be, you know, contemplating suicide, for example, they, they may be saying, okay, my next step is suicide, but I'm going to try Wobot, um, you know, just in case that can help me now. Uh, that is obviously scary to, to anyone who even um, hears that scenario. And, and there's many other scenarios like that where this would not be the, the proper intervention given the need. So, um, yeah, you can tell I have sort of mixed views on it. I see potential but it would certainly need to be improved and it is certainly not going to s- solve the really even the majority of the issues we're facing.
0: Absolutely. And I think there would be a a large component, you know, there's a emphasis placed on evidence-based medicine and how do we know in releasing these chatbots that they're effective or maybe not so effective before using them. And then there's a component of someone has to kind of be the guinea pig for this system and do you really want to have people experiencing mental illness being basically guinea pigs for a chatbot? was a, a concern that has been brought up um, related to the chat bot. So
1: yes, uh, ethical <laughs> considerations. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, these technologies ought to have a team of tech ethicists, ideally with diverse perspective and voices, diverse types of expertise at the table, because uh, we know with the power of machine learning that if you build it in such a way that there's a an awareness area that will become magnified that 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 will be accelerated and and the the product could potentially be harmful something that started out as a oversight can then be magnified into something that's a weapon and you know that's that's a bad outcome of AI potentially if we don't yeah. do this right. And so those those inputs are how the algorithm is designed. Um, the more precise, the more sophisticated, the more inclusive of diverse needs and situations, scenarios, the better. And this is all a work in progress, as you point out. It's an experiment in real time. It's a new innovation, a new technology. And somebody ought to be measuring risks and benefits so that we can have informed consent as we interface with these technologies.
0: You touch on a really interesting point about the bias potentially. And we we have in this comes seems to come up in every episode of our podcast, but about encoding our implicit bias into some of these systems. You know, it it can have really disastrous effects. And I think there's no place more where that would be apparent more than psychiatry, especially because In the Twin Cities we have a very diverse population there's very diverse ways about speaking about mental illness um, from different cultural perspectives I know there needs to be some like cultural training in these systems
1: absolutely Uh, cultural responsiveness cultural sensitivity those are all essentially gold standards in psychiatric care and practice there are not one size fits all models for psychiatry. We take into account biological, social, and psychological needs and circumstances of the individual. And so as complex as that is, that's why we train four years in psychiatry to be able to uh, account for all of those pieces. Um, It's tempting to want to oversimplify into do you have the symptom, yes or no, but um, ultimately, it's it's never going to be that simple and so that's what i mean by precision nuance uh, not that we can't maybe achieve that one day but we're certainly not there yet
0: yeah do you think i know you have a lot of background in medical education do you think that the future psychiatrists are being well trained on cultural backgrounds and how to be respectful of different approaches to mental health
1: the critically important nature of the need for inclusive practices in psychiatry that are culturally responsive is being emphasized currently as a best practice and a gold standard. So if you look at the milestones that residents are expected to achieve in the course of their professional development in psychiatry and some of the initiatives being supported by the American Psychiatric association to ensure that there's, again, this very high-level quality curricula in meeting the needs of diverse populations and and cultures. Uh, it's definitely being invested in as a priority from the standpoint of the institution. Now, how well is that being implemented at a local level or emphasized at a local level? We still have um, historical echoes of the status quo that uh, work their way into the classroom where cross-cultural concepts or needs are minimized or even dismissed in some cases. So um, again, I'm not going to stand here and say that it's perfect, but but we're slowly taking steps in the right direction, I would say.
0: That's fantastic and good to hear. And hopefully those steps in the right direction can be incorporated to anything like AI or any innovation in the area of psychiatry. I want to touch on also another topic, um, kind of talking about the use of AI in mental health really exposes the lack of, we were talking about the lack of structure and the, the need for providers. What other structures do you see that are in place, you know, besides inpatient psych units, which is what we see a lot of as medical students, for people who need a really high acuity of care,
1: that's an excellent question and one that is on the mind of any person or family member who's experiencing a psychiatric crisis. That usually takes the form of a psychiatric illness that's um, maybe developing an episode. Maybe somebody's going into a episode of having psychotic thinking or an episode of mania, which is a a very serious mood state that results in people thinking, feeling, and behaving in ways that they normally wouldn't. Um, That their brain activity is actually influenced by the psychiatric illness to produce very serious and often bewildering symptoms to those around them. This also encompasses people who might be experiencing hopelessness, despondency, suicide thoughts or self-interest behaviors, this broad range of presentations can be captured in the term psychiatric crisis or psychiatric emergency. And the needs of each of those presentations is very different. And so it's unfortunately sometimes boils down to a psychiatry crisis line or um, presenting to your local ED and hoping or emergency department, and hoping that they can sort of triage the situation and recommend local resources which may or may not be present in Minnesota. Every county has its own form of crisis response team. So, if you're not necessarily wanting to dial 911, which you know, it's worth every time I talk about dialing 911, we have to acknowledge the fact that, um, depending on the, the person or community in question, um, there's a risk of being killed by police uh, anytime there's a, a acute mental health emergency interfacing with um, you know police enforcement and and that sort of system. So uh, I just uh, emphasize that sometimes somebody might not want to call nine one one. There is often a community crisis response number for mental health that people can call where where they'll be connected with either a social worker or a, a psychologist or um, public health worker who is trained in triaging crises and connecting with local resources. And so I just almost feel a little shameful um, talking about this because, like I said, it, you're you're telling me that I can either call 911 or call a county crisis response, which may or may not pick up the phone or maybe would call back the next day or... Um, you know, say, well, we can get you an appointment with a counselor in a few weeks or something like that. You know, it, it just feels disappointing. It feels sort of not good enough. And I want, want to acknowledge it's not good enough, but that is what we have access to at the moment, at least in Minnesota. Minnesota is better off than some other states, if you can believe it. As other states don't necessarily have that county crisis response infrastructure. So, um, yeah, the, the need for innovative solutions that leverage technology, that leverage machine learning, the opportunity uh, is certainly there. Um, and then we have that imperative to do it right.
0: I think it's really interesting that you touch on kind of the emergency piece of things. I was really lucky to be at a hospital for my psychiatry rotation that had a dedicated emergency area for psychiatric complaints and the, whole, the entire setup of the emergency department was completely different you know there was uh, it was very kind of a a padded environment so that people who are having a psychiatric complaint were kind of in a space that was very neutral um no access to you know things they could use to harm themselves You, you don't see scalpels or scissors just lying on the table a very different environment but it was kind of a little bit heartwarming to me to see like hey this stuff is being taken really seriously. There are enough people having mental health crises that we need this, and now we have this space for those people.
1: I just find that very cool. Yeah, you'll see that a little bit more in the Twin Cities where there's higher volumes. I can think of a number of health systems that have sort of parallel emergency services for psychiatric emergencies. The experience is generally kind of disappointing you know if you plan to present in this setting you can uh, plan on being there eight hours for example maybe maybe that's true of the regular ER these days uh, but it, it is a huge commitment of time and um unclear outcome it might provide might provide access to inpatient hospitalization if that criteria is met or um, an outcome may be a referral to a psychiatry or psychotherapy appointment uh, with sooner access than might be obtained just by googling clinics, for example. Um, So I think people who have presented to those emergency psychiatric services, probably say they had a range of outcomes ranging from excellent to very disappointing. Um, But yeah, it's an indication that the volumes are are such that we're really Needing essentially parallel services to sort of the medical emergency department in um, many of these settings and 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 they're very busy.
0: I can imagine they're busy, and I've heard that the wait time for inpatient psych beds is uh, is it's very significant and something I was thinking about as as you were talking about that is kind of the varying levels of um, health literacy that patients might have, and how patients seek out their first touch point with the psychiatric or the mental health system. Do you find that most patients, you know, know just, oh, I'm going to make an appointment at my, I'm going to go seek out a clinic or, oh, this is an acute event. This is the first time this is happening. I'm going to present at an emergency department. From my perspective, you know, even as a medical student and having some intimate knowledge of the healthcare system, it seems very overwhelming to know where to start in interacting with the mental health system. Has that been your experience as well?
1: Absolutely. And this is not just, um, you know, populations that you would classically think uh, maybe had barriers to education in this area. This is every person at all levels, socioeconomic status, access to education. If I just found people and asked them, what is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? I think most people would not be able to answer that. I I often have medical students um, who will refer to me as a psychologist, and I have to say, oh, this you know, it's terminology. um, Yes, I do practice some psychotherapy, and I'm trained in psychotherapy, as psychologists are, but uh, I go to medical school, and I'm trained in the biopsychosocial model, and uh, I prescribe medications. That's what I'm trained in. How many people would just know that or understand that? it's it's very few. So the health education literacy uh, around mental health, it's like almost at a point of being a non-starter. You know, I think in schools, they're doing a better job about providing education about things like depression and anxiety within health class. And I absolutely love to see that even some of the social, emotional, behavioral learning um, that is starting to be implemented in elementary curricula. um, My heart just soars uh, seeing that. So I think our our children maybe have higher mental health literacy than sometimes even um, their parents might even just broadly speaking so and and how many people know that there are emergency behavioral services in the Twin Cities that you could present to most people don't know that I get a lot of emails a lot of questions of people saying I'm having an emergency but I don't want to go to the emergency department Uh, what do I do Um, so Yeah, I know this sounds very bleak. I apologize for that. But uh, that's one of the reasons why I did create my podcast um, a few years back. And the first episode is essentially, what is mental health? Uh, No, it is not a moral or characterological failing. It is a health condition like any other medical illness. And Uh, What is the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, these wonderful disciplines that collaborate with one another? What are those differences? And uh, how would you know if you needed help? And where would you get help from? (laughs) That's episode one. Yeah, it kind
0: of reminds me when I was a kid, we had a sticker on our fridge that was the number for poison control and if ever one of us ate something that was wrong we knew where to go because the poison control number was there it was on the fridge you know where to go and i feel like there's not a poison control sticker for mental health services there's not a i know exactly where to go i know exactly what to do it's it's a challenging system to navigate for many people and so i think that kind of ties back into you know people are using their devices technology to access uh, healthcare and and the mental health system, and so these chatbots, I could see where this would be a really valuable tool for some people, and I wonder if there's, you know, if, if people are going to be using these systems, do you think that there are certain conditions, psychiatric conditions, that AI chatbots would be good for, or certain conditions that maybe you might not want to seek out chatbot assistance, and you would definitely want to go in and receive either emergency services or psychiatric services elsewhere?
1: You can kind of look at the experience of being human and having human needs and emotions on a continuum. At some point, there's a line where uh, normal sadness, normal anxiety, normal fear, you know, healthy range. There's, there's people experiencing a healthy range of negative emotions. And that sounds weird to say healthy range of negative emotions, but uh, being sad is not a psychiatric illness. That's an emotion. It's real. And it's something that um, most, most everybody's gonna experience from time to time. Now there's a line though, when those uh, range of normal, healthy human experiences crosses a threshold into psychiatric illness. Uh, the point where um, you're experiencing significant impairment to your functioning, or thinking, feeling or behaviors that uh, you're not able to move forward with achieving or accomplishing your goals because these psychiatric symptoms are representing a form of impairment. And so, again, from a health literacy standpoint, that line between you know feeling sad, lonely, anxious, um, maybe you moved to a new city or went off to college and you know, have a case of the blues, a case of the Mondays, you know this kind of thing. I mean, uh, a chatbot-based intervention could absolutely be used as a tool for emotional modulation. Maybe you go in with kind of a, a yucky feeling or a, a sad feeling, um, or you're fearful about a test coming up and you use the chat bot and it just gives you a boost. And you, you know what, I'm gonna, I can get through this, I feel a little bit better. But the chat bots, as, as I can tell, are not poised to diagnose and treat psychiatric illness. And that's where you really need Uh, access to professional services at that point. How do you know where that line is? How do you know if you've crossed that threshold? It's very confusing for people. Often it might be your family or loved ones saying, oh my goodness, I think you've crossed that threshold. You might not even have insight into that yourself. And so um, that's why this is complex and and confusing because in psychiatric illness, uh, there are symptoms represented that in, in smaller amounts, part of normal human experiencing and so um yeah we're really up against a challenge here with this
0: absolutely a challenge and it sounds like our listeners if they were interested could learn more about you know where that line is of when to seek help and and uh, more very interesting things about psychiatry in your podcast the mind deconstructed any other information about your podcast that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: yeah i Produced these podcast episodes between uh, 2017 and 2020. I've taken a break in producing them um, since uh, since the pandemic and kind of a retooling of some of my <laughs> professional and home responsibilities. But um, the aim of the podcast is really to do just that: to provide basic psychiatric education. Uh, there's no jargon, so it, it, anyone could listen to this. A high schooler could listen to this podcast and benefit from the education. And so plain talk on basic concepts regarding to mental illness, how we understand them, and uh, general ways and how we go about treating psychiatric illness so that people can be empowered with the basic concepts, the ba- basic symptoms, like you said, understanding where that threshold is between you know the blues and major depression and the key concepts that any provider would be having in their mind as you go to talk with them and interface with them. I think one of the limitations of my podcast is that it does not go deep enough into some of the disparities that we see in certain communities and populations. So um, that's important to keep in mind as I do talk generally about symptoms and how we treat them. uh, But the podcast could be absolutely improved by um, acknowledging the many disparities that we see, um, particularly racial disparities, gender disparities, um, neurodiversity disparities. A lot of those are are not represented in that podcast, so that's important to keep in mind. So the content is dated from that point of view, but the 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 key concepts and the and the basic education in terms of for example, what medical students are taught. I'm sort of teaching the public what medical students are taught essentially uh, as a service to the community so that they're not sort of kept in the darker uh, siloed uh, away from this information.
0: That's fantastic. And I really believe, you know, the, the information we learn in medical school should be open and available for everyone to kind of take take charge and take the reins on their own health. So I, that's a very cool uh, resource that you're providing for folks. And I want to transition us into kind of our closing questions here. We have a couple of, I think they're pretty tough questions, and we won't hold you to any of the answers. But our first question is, uh, what do you think the future of AI in psychiatry will look like in 10 years? And like I said, we're not holding you to it. So if your predictions don't come true,
1: don't sweat it. Well, ultimately, what we're going to be working towards is a seamless range of services to meet the diverse needs of people in their communities. AI and machine learning is absolutely going to be a part of this as we seek to scale uh, our work and to, to leverage the expertise of people who have been trained in psychiatry or Um, tech ethics or um, system construction, Uh, AI and machine learning has tremendous potential in this space if we do it well. One of the main avenues where I see this taking shape is in the domain of patient education and self-diagnosis. So um, as our public becomes more educated, they're going to read and understand about different psychiatric symptoms and and say syndromes and say i have that or i think my mom has that or I think my sister has that or my friend my my partner and so um we currently see that happening right now like for example with tiktok people interface with the tiktok app it has an extremely powerful algorithm they hear narratives of people living with different aspects of psychiatric illness. It resonates with them and they like the video, they bookmark the video. That leads, of course, to more um, videos related to the content based on the machine learning of the algorithm. And they say, oh my goodness, I think I have ADHD or I think I have autism. I think I have tick disorder. I think I have a dissociative disorder. And and, uh, sometimes that can... Father, a healthcare professional, somebody comes in and says, "I've been watching TikTok and I think I have autism." But I think about that completely different. This person has invested hours in understanding diagnoses of ADHD or autism or whatever it is that is resonating with them. They know their self experience. They're hearing their stories represented in the narratives of other people who have been diagnosed with these disorders. Is it accurate? Um, maybe, maybe not. But I would tend to say. If there's something there that we should probably consider because that expertise of someone living in their own experience, understanding the narratives of others, they're coming in with incredibly important information that should not be discounted. And anyone who seeks to discount that, I think, is perhaps threatened by these technologies more than embracing them. It doesn't mean you have to diagnose with someone just because they come in with a self diagnosis. You can explore it along with them, though. And you can do that non-judgmentally rather than railing about, you know, how, how everyone's watching TikTok and thinks they're ADHD now. Well, if you're spending eight hours on TikTok, you might have ADHD. I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's kind of a self-selecting sort of activity for people with um, executive dysfunction uh, issues. So I really think that um, that is a pathway of the, fu- of the future and that's actually the right direction that people are empowered with information and they can co-produce uh, diagnosis with their physician rather than um, being at, at the mercy of physicians as gatekeepers on the information and knowledge. Because I think that's where a lot of the biases and disparities can really come into play in those kinds of situations. So I think that's part of the future. And then hot off the press, uh, chat GPT, representing now an open AI opportunity for patients and physicians. We now, as just a member of the general public, have access during this period of time, who knows how how long it'll be available, but during this period of time, we have fingertip ready access to machine learning. And this will be similar to, I think, when Google hit the scene. You know, I was alive. You were probably alive, Maddie. I don't know. I won't guess how old you are. But there was a moment in time where this disruptive technology was introduced where you could type in a term and related topics would come up and you could learn about something. Think how much Google has disrupted what we do, how we access information about healthcare. And, um, and, and, uh, Resources that we seek out. I think technologies like chat, GPT, open AI, this does represent a similar disruption in the same way the internet or the capacity to do Google search. Uh, to me, this is one of those seminal moments. I mean, I think a lot of things come and go and they end up not being ultimately disruptive in a large scale. This is one of those things that will be disruptive. And so um, I'm excited about the potential. Of course, uh, there's potential costs that go along with any disruptive technology and the ethics we have to consider. But um, I'm very excited to see the potential and how this will actually uh, put information and the outputs of machine learning in the hands of anyone at this point. So it's very exciting.
0: Very exciting. And ultimately, you know, the patient-physician relationship has kind of been shifting. And it is so valuable to have patients who are coming in taking charge of their care because ultimately it's a partnership between a physician who's an expert on medicine, on, you know, health, and a patient who's an expert on their own body and knowing themselves. And so when patients come in with that information, like, hey, I think that this might be what's going on but they also have a little bit of that medical background. They're able to have the access to the knowledge. It's wildly powerful. So sounds like some very cool stuff for psychiatry and AI and psychiatry in the next 10 years.
1: That's right. I mean, there may be a day where uh, I'm not sure about somebody's diagnosis, and they ask to look at their bookmarked TikTok videos and (laughs) try to get a sense of, you know, um, the kinds of, topics and and content that uh, the app user is affirming and interacting with. I mean, is that an important source of information? I think it is as important as other types of sources of information. So uh, there may be a day where um, this is part of usual practice.
0: Very cool. All right, well, I'll, I'll ask some more personal questions about you. This is, I think, a tougher question, but I find this question to be super valuable because it helps us get to know you a little bit better and it kind of shows growth and and kind of how your career has moved forward but what do you think is your biggest failure and it can be personal or professional and what did you learn from it
1: I can probably think of two Um, the first one is more professional the second one would be more personal Uh, from a professional standpoint I as someone who embraces innovation and as we learn new knowledge seeks to have it be immediately implemented <laughs> I think I have underestimated consistently the pull and the tug back to the status quo that that large institutions demonstrate <laughs> frankly you know I consider myself a change agent that's what I do uh, if we know better we should do better and really make that change and that I tell you it's not self-evident it is not self-evident there's a status quo and it is super powerful and so um, I have spent a lot of time assuming <laughs> that a, that a a change was sort of self-evident and we were on the, on the same page, moving at that direction only to learn that, oh, you know, maybe people say they are all for change and innovation, but ultimately the institution is gonna drag us back to that status quo. I mean, we see that in national politics too. You know, we, yeah. we think certain legislation has been passed and, you know, we've accepted as a society that certain people should have rights and then whoa, that that pendulum comes swinging back the other way, and, and those rights are eroded. And it's just so painful to see because you thought I I thought we I thought this that we'd agreed that that we we know this new information and we've accepted this as being true. And so um, I think a lot of people, especially uh, maybe in, in my age or generation, are are kind of living with that that bewilderment or that grief of like. What is with this status quo, and why is it just so powerful and and insistent on on eroding um, hard earned hard fought progress? Wow. So um, that would be one failure that I'm working on remediating. Wow. And then uh, personally, I would say that in my drive and effort to be a change agent and change the world, this is so this has been so exciting for me, so high impact, there's high stakes involved. And I think at times I just can kind of get into the idea of, oh, I have to be present and I have to be that change agent so that we can make progress. Um, and this has to be my number one priority. Well, this is really a marathon, not a sprint. Sometimes <laughs> I've been guilty of trying to do that sprinting. And when you're doing that sprinting, you're not doing things like, Going to the doctor, going to the dentist uh, you know keeping your your body's health and maintained for yourself and um that's definitely been been part of my reality where I have consistently and maybe even been conditioned to I mean you know I won't just say it's a personal issue because I think we have evidence that there's some structural or environmental uh, reinforcers for this kind of behavior but um putting one's personal health on the back burner, uh, it just it just can't happen because then you're not able to sustain being that change agent. And if we can kind of switch and think that this is more of a marathon than a sprint, and yeah, there's no change that's gonna happen where we just sprint to it because that status quo is gonna just keep coming back into the picture. Um, don't uh, sacrifice your health and the health of your family in the process because ultimately it will not have been worth it because that status quo is gonna uh come right back and you're gonna think gosh well, should I sacrifice my health for nothing <laughs> you know that kind of thing so um you know it's taken me you know a few decades to sort of uh, arrive at this wisdom that's common wisdom that I think is is not a secret uh, to most people,
0: is, but I don't know if it's as, as much of a secret as, or I think it is as much of a secret as you say, especially for folks in medicine, because we have a lot of pressure to do a lot of stuff. And I know many medical students, myself included, who will overcommit themselves and then realize, you know, my realization was my appendix burst, And I said, hmm, maybe I'm taking on too much. And I think sometimes you need like a, a seminal event like that to say to yourself, hey, we need to you know, your body has to be in shape if you're going to run the marathon.
1: Totally, that's right. That's right. So we're on the same page there. But uh, yeah, I, I do uh, appreciate the opportunity to share about those um, hard-earned lessons. We'll call them, because I think that's a way that I can sort of take meaning from uh, those challenges that I've had. If if somebody else can listen to this podcast and and hear that and internalize those lessons, then I'll have considered it worth it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So transitioning, you've had a very exciting and very cool career and have certainly pursued a lot of really impactful projects. What is your advice to someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Maybe in psychiatry, maybe in medical education?
1: This field that I've been working in psychiatry education is Desperate for diverse voices and experiences. Similar to machine learning, the outputs are only as good as the inputs. And this field has suffered from historically homogenous inputs. And we see the fingerprints and results of that today in so many ways. And so as much as I am complicit and propagate some of those issues, I do try to be aware to to deconstruct or dismantle uh, these historical legacies as often as I can. But I have my own limitations and my own implicit biases that prevent me from even doing that fully. So I implore people, especially people who have had Diverse intersectional identities, or people who have overcome adversity along their journey. Maybe you have had a psychiatric illness, or someone in your family has had psychiatric illness. It's so critical that you join me and others in this work and on this team. Um, it is rewarding work, especially if you can stay healthy <laughs> through it. <laughs> so that's where that hard-earned lesson comes in. It's incredibly rewarding. There's no shortage of opportunity. So for example, whatever you wanna improve or change it's probably bad and could be improved or changed. So the opportunities are there and we need you. And it's very rewarding to do work that is so desperately needed. So I encourage people to go into this with, um, with open eyes that there's sacrifice and challenges involved in in the process itself we're working to actually reduce some of those barriers uh the r- remove some of the intrinsically racism or biased in other ways discriminatory mechanisms in terms of who's accepted the medical school and and how people are selected for residency that work is imperfect and ongoing and so um i would say uh simply we need you And so if you wanna do this work, we need you. And please please help us.
0: That's a beautiful sentiment. And I hope lots of people will pursue psychiatry. I was uh, recently speaking with someone in the medical school who was saying interest is increasing. So hopefully that's reflected in your your residency. But I wanna end on uh, a final and very upbeat question of the thing that you're proudest of in you can be again in your career or your personal life or both
1: i'll answer this question in relationship to my professional life Um, i'm extremely proud of some opportunities that i had during my residency to that i took advantage of to get specialized training in working with people who are living with borderline personality disorder and understanding some of the updated best practices in helping that community. The reason why I am most proud of this is because this is a community that is openly and unapologetically in some cases discriminated against, not just by people in healthcare, but people in psychiatry and certainly people in the general public. Uh, For many years, it's been kind of cool to hate on people with borderline personality disorder. That's obviously um, so egregious and unacceptable and harkens back to my uh, original drive to become a psychiatrist, which is to identify populations and, and people that are being unjustly unfairly marginalized through for no good reason for for something that they can't help uh, for having a medical condition for having a brain condition and so I'm very proud to have taken advantage of the training opportunities that I was provided and at this point I have a very broad platform for teaching about speaking about writing standardized guidelines in some cases for the best practices in treatment of people living with borderline personality disorder and so I'm I'm proud that I took advantage of that training opportunity and I'm proud that I now have a platform to make a difference and there's so much work to be done but it's the right kind of work and I think Uh, lives are on the line, essentially, with this kind of work. So it's an area where I do feel I've had broad national, maybe even some cases, global impact. And we're not all the way there, but I hope in some cases, that it's actually made a difference in people's lives.
0: I'm sure it has. And your, your passion is evident in your voice. And I think that speaks volumes to the work you've done and are continuing to do. Dr. Nelson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any final words that you want to leave our listeners with?
1: We are living in an age where every year that goes by disruption is happening. Some for good, some for worse and that pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. So it can feel incredibly chaotic. It can feel bewildering at times. It can induce hopelessness, uh, even nihilism. Why, why are we doing this? Um, why am I spending time on this? I think understanding for each of us, where are our boundaries in terms of um, living day to day, working to make a difference, but not sacrificing oneself so much for institutions that you actually lose a part of yourself or become complicit in some of the structural harms. I think determining that balance for each of us is going to be imperative if we're going to live and thrive during these chaotic times. What are the avenues to doing that? There's nine different avenues, individual psychotherapy is one of them, uh, but there's other avenues as well. And so I just want to empower and encourage people to uh, take time, whether it's taking a day off or taking a weekend off or while you're doing your meal prepping or, or while you're changing your Bonnie's litter box or whatever it may be uh, to actually you um, reserve part of that brain space to, to visit that part of your brain that says, where is the line? Where is my limit uh, between um, responding to these fires that come up every day and me?" Um, living my life in a way that's sustainable. So uh, I think once you have that boundary, it makes that day-to-day management that much more possible and makes life much more fulfilling. And you might even have to learn that the hard way by um, overstepping that boundary for yourself before you even find out where that boundary is. Uh, But once you find it, it can be actually quite liberating. You know, it sounds weird that a boundary would be liberating, but it it really can be, especially if you're at risk of overstepping that boundary repeatedly. So uh, I just invite people to consider that and, and leave you with that question. Where is that line for you? And I, I hope you find it. And I, I hope you get there sooner rather than later. Uh, in, in my case, it's been a little bit later. But uh, I, love, I love talking about this. So I'm on Twitter um, for now, as long as there is a Twitter. And... Um, Uh, Facebook as well. And I can be contacted directly if you want to talk more about these concepts I'm available. I I really enjoy doing this.
0: I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much.